have to be honest, before reading Professor Nigel Dodd's book, The Social Life of Money, money to me was just a thing in my pocket or just some numbers on a screen. I mean, I never really thought about it. So it was a really interesting and enlightening experience to read this challenging book. Nigel covers many interesting perspectives and I feel that I've come away from reading it knowing more about what money isn't than what it actually is. And all week I, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So Nigel, thanks for having a chat with me. Excellent. I'm, I'm pleased that's what you concluded actually. Thank you. It's a, ple a pleasure talking to you. Um, so let's, uh, let's clear this up first because I'm guessing that most people listening to our conversation think that money is a thing. Yes. Um, I mean, if you think about it uh, and you imagine money, and so anybody listening to this now and you say, okay, you know, draw me a mental picture of money, people still generally think of uh, notes and coins or even gold. Whereas, of course, 98% of money in circulation in Britain today, and I think the figure is very similar in, in Germany, or in, I think it's even higher in, in a country like Sweden, the vast majority of money in circulation doesn't take the form of notes and coins. It takes the form of, uh, of claims made through the banking system and often mediated by, by plastic cards of one form or another. Um, so once you start thinking of money in more abstract terms and you start thinking, actually, you know, it's not notes and coins. It's actually just a series of claims. Then you begin to understand that money has a kind of dynamic quality. Um, and that it's more, it's more like a verb than a, than a noun, actually, you know, money is actually just a series of claims that, that move between people. Um, and it's that movement that sustains its value. Now that's crucial then, because as soon as you start thinking, okay, money has value, not because it has intrinsic properties or because it represents some object lying somewhere in the bottom of a bank, um, like gold, which it, which it never did and no longer does for sure, um, then you begin to understand that actually the money that I'm using has value because of the series of relationships that it's part of. You know, the, the reason that you're happy to accept euros uh, in payment in your job or, 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 or uh, or whatever, it is because you know that down the line uh, you can you can get rid of them again, you can use them, and, and so they they become part of a of a more general process in which money's circulating. So, you know, the idea that money is fundamentally a process, not a thing, really refers to that that we need to understand it dynamically. We need to understand what it does, um, and, and not get so caught up on what it is. So, is is money then more a symbol of trust? It is partly a symbol of trust. Um, I don't think that's all it is, but certainly it generally requires a certain kind of trust and or confidence. And that's a strange one, really, because in general, people don't think much about the money they're using. You know, that's partly the ideal. I mean, you know, you don't want to be thinking every day, is this money valuable? Will somebody else accept it tomorrow? Um, you don't want to be thinking when you're paid, you know, 10 euros for something, you know, will this 10 euros be worth 10 euros next week? And that's what makes Bitcoin difficult, of course, because its value fluctuates so much. And anybody that's been in a hyper hyperinflationary situation um, 
you know, that will confirm that as soon as you start worrying about money, then then that money is in, in trouble. You know, really, money is something that you don't want to be thinking about too much. So money is a token of trust, but it's a token of a very particular kind of trust. I think you trust money in a very different way than, say, you trust you know, your partner um, or a friend. I think money, yes, it's a token of trust, but it's also a kind of token of unassuming confidence uh, that, that all is well with the world. And it's not really something people think about unless it's under threat. As soon as it is under threat in all sorts of ways, then, then, then it becomes interesting. If you talk to uh, people in Britain about whether they would want the euro, then you, you do re- you find out all sorts of things about the assumptions people make about their money. They, 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 they then start telling you that money represents a form of memory to them. It represents something to do with their culture and their tradition and so on and so forth. But these are not normally th- things that people think about. Nigel, one of the um, most important themes of your book is the idea that money is a claim upon society. So could you maybe explain for us a little bit, how did you come to this idea? Um, I remember having a conversation with a, with a dear friend of mine who died a, a couple of years ago, David Frisbee, who was the translator of uh, Zimmel's Philosophy of Money. And he was a colleague of mine at the LSE. And uh, I, he came to get me for lunch one day and I was reading, I think, some book about banking. And, and I said something to him about what I'd been reading. And he said, look, you know, he said, your book is about money. Remember that. It's not about banking. And I remember thinking, you know, going away and thinking about that and, and, and gradually dawning on me that actually he was right, that what we'd been witnessing in 2007, 2008, 2009 was a financial crisis. It was a crisis of the financial system, and that wasn't the same at all as a crisis of money. Um, money was something more general and more specific. I mean, money is some, is a currency. It circulates amongst people. It, it's not reducible to the banking system. It's not the same as finance. In, in, so there are all kinds of ways in which you might want to draw that distinction. Um, and then I started thinking about the way in which uh, money was being spoken about in uh, in general. And then I saw this banner, and I mentioned this in the book, and it was a, a, not quite a moment of revelation that would be over dramatizing it but the banner was from a demonstration in paternoster square one of the occupied demonstrations and it says we are the true currency and it was written on a you know it's a homemade banner written on a piece of card and i remember thinking hang on that's really interesting so what is being suggested here is that there is a if you like a representation of money which is much closer to something like our core humanity, our, our communality, our sociality. And it's nothing to do with banks, nothing to do with states. It was as if this banner was saying, look, money is us. It's not the banks. It's not Wall Street. It's not finance. It's us. That's where its value comes from. And we need to reclaim it. That was how I started thinking about it. And that made me immediately think of Zimmel's description of money. And he says money is a claim upon society. And what he meant there is that when we have money, what we effectively have is, uh, if, if you like, a generalized claim that we can level against anybody else. So I can come to you with money and, and, and you can, you know, exchange that money for, for goods. Um, and with any payment community, 
whether it's the Eurozone or it's the UK or it's Bristol, if you're using the Bristol pound, for example, that money is a generalized claim that the individual has against the social group as a whole and which can be redeemed by any member of that social group. So that became an organizing theme of the book. Okay, money is a claim upon social life in some form or another, but it takes different forms and social life takes a different shape in each of those cases. So in a sense, you could say that each chapter of the book is a different iteration of that notion that money is a claim upon society. In the book, you talk often about the idea of monies in plural and not just money. But I mean, when I look at my life, I really kind of only have one form of money in my life, uh, euros. Well, I think I think you're aware of the existence of other currencies. I think you're aware of the existence of Bitcoin. Uh, you may well have used air miles. Uh, you may well have had store incentive points. In Britain, you'd be talking about Tesco's club card points or Sainsbury's nectar points. All of these are forms of money. You may well visit a town or a city or an area that has uh, its own local currency. In Britain, you'd be talking about the Bristol Pound or the Brixton pound. In Switzerland, you might be uh, you might encounter the VIR, although that's a business-to-business currency. In Greece, there are plenty of alternative local currencies emerging. So you may uh, think you've only got one currency in your life, but actually you probably interact with, with several already, and I think that's changing fast. The other thing that's changing is the way that you're paying. You know, you're, you're used to paying it with plastic cards, but I suspect in the next five to 10 years, you'll start paying increasingly with your mobile phone. And as soon as you start playing with your mobile phone, paying, not playing, um, you begin to participate in payments networks that aren't necessarily connected to the banking system. Apple Pay is obviously uh, simply the cutting edge of that, but there are other forms of, of, of uh, mobile phone payment coming in behind that. Can anyone do that? Can anyone just start their own currency? Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, for, for some time, that wasn't the case. I mean, years ago, uh, in the 1920s in Austria, a town launched its own currency, uh, and it was hugely successful. And in fact, it was so successful that another 70-odd towns in Austria started to dream up their own alternative currency schemes. Um, and they were stopped. And uh, there, was a, there was an Austrian law which said you can't create your own currency. Um, and this law was invoked by the government. And so no other towns were allowed to do this. But in, uh, in, in most countries, you can create a currency. Obviously, you need to go through certain regulatory hoops, depending on, on the basis on which you establish it. So for example, uh, the Brixton pound and the Bristol pound in the UK are both backed, fully backed by pound sterling. So for every Bristol pound in, in circulation, there is um, also a pound sterling sitting somewhere in a bank account. So there are all kinds of rules, but you can, in fact, establish your own currency. What is happening is that smaller and smaller groups are, are establishing their own forms of, forms of money uh, for their own specific purposes. And I think that's uh, kind of interesting and exciting. Control of the money supply is a control of power. Yes. And if you're losing your control of this, I mean, I can't see that governments would be so willing to do that. No, and I think that we've got to be careful here. You're not talking, you know, you're talking about the end of the national monopoly over the production of money. You're not talking about the end of national money. Um, so what you're really looking at here are fairly minor blips um, within the system. And um, 
small currencies emerging. And I think that's a very, very healthy and a very good thing, um, mostly because um, smaller currencies answer a need. You know, the, those, the most obvious need um, that, a, that a small currency answers is that it, it caters to the unbanked, to people that aren't part of the monetary mainstream. Um, and very often that's why these currencies emerge at moments when there is more general economic recession, the most famous case being Argentina after the default, um, where the, the, the official currency collapsed, there were no dollars in circulation, so people arranged their own um, monetary and barter systems. There was an explosion. You're getting uh, some of that going on in Greece today as well. But you know, you're not talking about a takeover of of national money. I mean, nobody's suggesting. Uh, certainly, nobody in their right mind is suggesting that suddenly Bitcoin is going to be the only money in town. And I think if it was the only money, there would be huge problems. At the start of your book, you write that money is essentially a fiction. It's a socially powerful and socially necessary illusion. And I'm really interested in your highlighting of the, the word socially necessary. Like, why, why is it so necessary that we keep this illusion of money as a thing? <laughs> that, that, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, all I know is that somehow we have to persuade ourselves that money has value. Um, and that the way in which habitually we think about that is precisely to think about money as a thing, um, to think about it as, as or, or carrying value inside it. And that as soon as we break out of that, it becomes actually quite difficult for us cognitively, I think. Um, now, whether that is just a habit of thought and it's what we're used to and it's simply that, that you know, we still imagine money um, as a noun, um, I don't know, but certainly it's incredible how common that is, you know, that people talk about money as if it's still a kind of variant of gold. Um, but I would say that's the norm. I mean, I would say that's almost everyone defaults to thinking that money is a thing. <laughs> yes. And maybe that's what I mean when I say socially necessary, that if they don't think like that, then in a sense money flakes in people's minds and they begin to worry about it and it doesn't kind of work in, 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 in anymore. So in a sense, for money to sustain its value, people have to think about that value in a certain way. And that's the only way that they can get their heads around. It. So like the, the, the magic works because everyone believes in magic. Kind, yeah, kind of, yeah. And even though I don't really think it's magic at all, this is the thing. I think the money, if you think about money as a claim, then it's, there's nothing magic about it. It's simply a, a claim that's passed around. Um, yeah, there's no mystery about that, but people find it much easier to think about money as a thing. And even with Bitcoin, which is an incredibly abstract um, idea, again, Bitcoin, if you think about it, has incredibly materialist language around it. You mine for Bitcoins. You use rigs. You know, that the whole language attached to Bitcoin is very similar to the kind of language we would use for precious metals. So it seems deeply embedded in the way that we think about value that we somehow have to give it a kind of materialist paraphernalia. And we haven't moved beyond that yet. So that's what I mean by socially necessary. Without that uh, underlying fiction, uh, we, we would have problems getting our heads around it. There was a really interesting kind of, uh, I guess, side point you made in your book, but it was something that really stuck with me. And that's the idea that money costs more when you're poor. Yeah, I mean, that. well, I think that's um, partly referring to things like payday loans. Um, 
But in general, if you think, in just in a basic sense, if you go to get um, advice or, uh, like on a mortgage or, or a loan, generally, um, the, 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 the poorer you are, the higher interest rate you'll, you'll have to pay. I mean, that's so in a very, very basic sense. Um, that, that's, that's a fact and that's sort of unavoidable. But I think there's a whole structural issue here too, that the poor are a very lucrative um, market, actually. I mean, they're just if you look at the... the, the Western transfer uh, and the the money they charge people to tr- that that don't have bank accounts but need to transfer money. So you go to a, a store with with ten dollars that you want to send to someone back home that you've earned, uh, and and you'll be charged you know two to twenty five percent, which is which is crazy. So um, I think this is important for 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 people to understand that 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 the that the poor is a sort of huge area. There there is a huge industry out there for financial institutions to to, to make an awful lot of money out of the poor. It seems uh, all all in all that there is sort of a, a knowledge gap in the system. I mean, money is something that we use every day, but we we don't even really know what it is. Right, exactly. I'll give you one one interesting example uh, of of the state of knowledge. Um, technically, money is created um, through the banking system. Money isn't created by governments or by central banks. It's created every time a normal commercial bank, a high street bank, makes uh, a loan. It creates money, and that's the fractional reserve system. Um, but lots of people believe that uh, actually it's the state that, that produces money, like on a printing press or, or the central bank, for example, like the Bank of England or the, or the ECB, that they create money, uh, which is actually completely wrong. And it's a misunderstanding of how the system works. Now, in, in the UK Parliament, they did a survey of MPs uh, to find out who really understood this. And of those, I think they surveyed 100 members of Parliament and 85 of that 100 thought that money is created through the central bank, by the central bank and in the central bank. So there's a lot of sort of ignorance about money still. So there's a long way, long way to go. When you think about reform and, and change in society, I mean, you naturally go down the political angle. And so, I mean, I'd never really considered uh, money itself right. or, or transforming money itself as a way of enacting change. It's a hugely powerful way. Uh, I mean, I just had lunch with someone from the Gates Foundation and like them or not, they've really looked at money as as having transformative potential in, in, in countries like Kenya with, with M-Pesa, for example. If you think about money, that it is, it is a hugely powerful medium. I mean, everybody ends up using it or needing it. And it's incredibly efficient in, in the way that it can spread messages or change people's behavior. So, you know, I, th- I think it, it does have incredible transformative power in a positive way. And, and people are thinking in incredibly imaginative ways about how you can redesign monetary systems and currency systems and, 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 and metrics in ways that can enhance people's lives rather than, uh, rather than detract from them. And this is a huge area now. Uh, and, I, you know, it's not going to go away. And I think it's tremendously exciting. And I think, yes, I mean, that, that there's, there will always be politics in money. And it's important to think that, you know, never to think that money can be apolitical. But yes, I think, I think going through money rather than through politics is something that we're seeing more and more of. And I think it's genuinely exciting and in quite inspiring, actually. Uh, I'd like to, to finish 
today, I guess, by getting to uh, getting you to elaborate on something you said, which is which was quite nice, <laughs> which is that <laughs> uh, which is that money should be an embodiment of our common humanity. Yes, that's a, um, that, can you <laughs> can you elaborate on that sweet uh, <laughs> thought? Yes, uh, that partly goes back, I think, to that to to to, to the poster that I saw in Paternoster Square. We are the true currency. Uh, that was my moment of uh, quasi-revelation for the book, you know, thinking, hang on, there is something about the underlying value of money which goes beyond the state, beyond banks, beyond institutions, and goes down to the people that use it. And in the end, if, you know, I'm quite simple-minded in my own way, even though you might not think it having read the book, but but I, I do like to take things down to the simplest possible level. And the simplest possible level with money is that in the end, it's what people will accept. Uh, and ordinary people, it, there's no great mystery to it that, that money works as long as people accept it as payment and use it as payment. Um, and that's in the end, what sustains the value of money is the, the general willingness of people to see it as money and to use it as money and to believe that it's money. Um, so in that sense, um, you know, money is what all of us value. But I guess I was trying to go even further with that and say, look, I think that there is uh, an inherent utopianism within money um, that hasn't been properly tapped, that we're just beginning to appreciate perhaps for the first time for, for many of us, that we can think of money as something incredibly positive. We can think of money as something incredibly transformative. Nigel, thanks. Uh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you today. It's a pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to uh, Nigel Dodd. He is Professor of Sociology at the London School of Economics, and his new book is called The Social Life of Money. My name is Craig Barfoot, and uh, yeah, thanks for having uh, listened to our chat. Ciao.